Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, and be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. Last time, we looked at clothing as corporate identity, the ways in which clothing can and has been used to signal who we are, and thus to direct the perception of both others and the individual himself about who he is. And today, I am taking what you might call a didactic detour to comment on a very specific and very insidious application of corporate clothing in the modern day, one which has returned to the news just recently, the masking. Smokey is not with me today, this will be a solo teaching episode, but I want to ask what masking means from a biblical symbolic perspective, and how we should therefore think about it and respond to it. Sometimes I like to work up to my conclusion, but here I am going to state it at the outset and then show my working for the rest of this episode. My conclusion is that masking is a flagrant attack on Christ's lordship because it seeks to remove the very thing that identifies us as God's image. Here's what I mean. To be faceless is to have no identity, to become inhuman. It is the ultimate expression of the atomization of the individual and the disenchantment of reality, reducing God's image bearers to a meaningless horde. This kind of zombie language might sound over the top, but consider the enormous symbolic significance of faces in scripture. It's a term, the term face, appears within the second verse of the Bible and repeatedly thereafter. And this fact is often obscured by Bibles which seek to interpret the words of God into good English rather than translate them as closely as possible into the equivalent words in English. So, for instance, even the wooden, supposedly wooden NASB, renders pene face in Genesis 1-2 as surface, and dynamic versions like the NIV and the NET, while they are useful for some applications, are even worse at this, and hence my preference for translations like the ASV, which tend to be more intentional about preserving the words of scripture, so the reader is left with the job of identifying and interpreting important word patterns themselves, admittedly at the expense of a polished English reading experience, and heaven forbid we have to work at reading God's own words, right? Translation rants aside, let me ask you, what is a face? Is it not the outermost or uppermost part of a thing, that which both separates and connects what lies within and what exists without. Think of a computer interface. It can be the outermost limit of the depths of an ocean, as in Genesis 1-2. It can be the place of access to the potential of the land, as in Genesis 1-29. Or most importantly, it can be the part of man that reveals his heart to the world, as in Genesis 4-5-6. The face represents the inner man, and it thus establishes relational presence, Seeing someone's face means to have a direct access or communion, for good or ill, with that person. Think of what Judah tells his father about Joseph in Genesis 43.3, for instance. The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. Or think of Matthew 18.10, where Jesus speaks of covenant children, saying, Their angels, that is their spirits, do always behold the face of my father, who is in heaven. 
To seek God's face is therefore to seek to know him, to enter into fellowship with him. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a good example. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The face, in other words, is a physical expression of our inner spirit. It is literally a symbol of our soul. This is why, according to scripture, to set one's face is to set one's self towards or against something. To say that someone's face is fallen or sad is to say that his heart is cast down. A man can have a face like a lion or a face harder than rock. Gladness and strength of heart can be combined in Psalm 104.15 in a parallel triplet with a shining face. A brazen face can refer to an impudent attitude. And a hypocrite is likened by James to a man who forgets his own face. The face being a symbol of the soul is also why facial deformities are so psychologically destructive. We are designed to naturally trust and like beautiful people and to feel instinctive reservations and revulsion about ugly or deformed people. As a symbol of our full selves, the face represents and mediates our identity to others. So when Cain was cut off from God, he was hidden from God's face, Genesis 4.14. Whereas Moses, who had unprecedented fellowship with God, spoke with him face to face as a man speaks to his friend, that's Exodus 33.11. Yet even Moses could not see God's true face, the essence which his physical face expressed, unveiled by flesh, for to see the full expression of God's glory would consume him. In a related vein, the face is also frequently combined with the symbolism of light to express favorable presence and gift-giving. Think of the Levitical blessing, Yahweh make his face to shine upon you. And conversely, it's also associated with hiding or darkness to signify the removal of favor and help. Think of Psalm 13.1, how long, O Yahweh, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Much of this is really quite obvious, we know from experience, the face reveals the heart, but it's necessary to labour the point a bit because few of us have spent time meditating on the significance of these things. We know about the face intuitively because it's built into our nature, but to appreciate its implications, this intuitive knowledge must be channeled into a considered understanding and directed by what scripture says. So, what do you communicate when you cover your face? Because facial symbolism is so all-encompassing, being about our very identities, there is great significance to covering the face. And there's also much room for subtlety in the meaning of this covering, depending on how it is used, just as there is much subtlety in the face itself. For instance, falling on one's face to cover it communicates something about status. It may express that you are unworthy of someone's presence, or even that you are undone in some way. Lot communicates his esteem of the angels when he bows himself with his face to the earth in Genesis 19.1. Joshua falls on his face before the prince of Yahweh's army, the Lord Jesus, in Joshua 5.14. We all know the comical meaning of Dagon, the Philistine god, being fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh in 1 Samuel 5.4. I won't labor the point, I think you get it. So how about veiling the face? Well, this can indicate that one is up to something illicit, as Tamar is in Genesis 38.15 when she meets Judah, or that one is up to very much the same thing, but in an illicit context as Rebecca is in Genesis 24.64 when she meets Isaac. 
This particular use of the symbolic pattern is, in fact, so deeply pressed into the heart of mankind that it persists even today, as many brides still choose to wear vestigial veils at their weddings, despite the best efforts of feminism to eradicate the notion of veiling a woman in any way. What all these uses of covering share in common is the following unifying principle. Hiding the face is a declaration of comparison. It is to say either who I am is of no account compared to this other thing, or sometimes what this other thing is, is of no account to me. For an example of the latter, think of Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Notice that in the comparison that takes place by hiding the face, the significance is not at all confined to mere social rank. It inevitably reflects on your inner being. It is an identity statement, a declaration about the value of you, about your meaning as a human being. This can be for good or ill, but whether for good or ill, it just does signal something about you or about someone else by relationship to you, whether that is modesty and submission or unworthiness and subjection. Therefore, when you comply with a command to cover your face, it just does signal the same thing. Clothing is communication, as we have learned. In the case of a lawful command, you may be communicating your meekness and submission to rightful authority. But when the command itself is abusive and unlawful, it communicates something quite different. That you yourself are of small account, that you are paltry and unimportant and meaningless. In the case of masking, you communicate that you are of small account compared to the state god and its false reality and idolatrous rituals. It is to self-demean, to blot out your identity, to literally efface yourself and what you know to be true for a lie from a false god about the greater good, because we know that masks don't work, and that there's really no danger. It is to say that you are unworthy of fellowship with your fellow man, and to physically cut that fellowship off by removing the surface upon which it takes place at the behest of an idol. There is also further symbolism associated specifically with covering the mouth. When Yahweh speaks to Job out of the storm, Job replies, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Here we see again being made of small account, but we also see quite obviously the refusal to speak, or put another way, the willingness to be silenced. While covering your face blots out your identity, covering your mouth blots out your voice, which in turn represents your agency in the world, your capacity to image the true speech of John 1.1 and Genesis 1.3. This capacity is evidenced even by common sayings like giving someone a voice, or ensuring that a particular group has a voice, or speaking up for someone. There is thus a doubly insidious element to masking in that it covers enough of the face to obliterate your identity, but it is especially targeted at removing your voice. To mask yourself is to make yourself of small account and to give up your agency, to self-demean and to self-censor. It is a kind of recursive lie in which you communicate falsehood and simultaneously your unwillingness or inability to speak against that falsehood. 
Now notice what happens when everyone does this. Under mass masking, society itself becomes faceless, meaningless, and voiceless. If the face is the surface that both connects and separates the inner realities of things, then when everyone's face is obscured, there is no surface to connect people together, nor to distinguish them from one another. There is no mechanism of fellowship or sociality, nor of self-differentiation or individuality. In other words, mass masking actually destroys both corporate and individual identity. The reason I spoke before of mass masking in terms of a meaningless horde is precisely because of this, because it follows the same symbolic pattern that zombie movies tap into. Before the 20th century, zombies were essentially unheard of as a cultural trope anywhere. Yet, from the mid-20th century, a steady trickle of proto-zombie films started to appear until they truly captured our cultural imagination with Romero's Dawn of the Dead in 1978. And the reason is not that difficult to discern. Prior to this time, no culture has ever faced such atomization, such a loss of cohesion, and survived to pass on its stories. The trope of empty individuals, individuals lacking true personal agency, all part of a horde, yet sharing no social connection that makes them functional members of that larger body, devouring anyone who retains his personal individuality, particularly devouring what makes you you by eating your brain. This is the story of modern urban life, taken to its extreme and expressed in symbolic terms. Why are our governments trying to recreate and intensify this pattern in reality? Why are they seeking to silence and deface their own citizens? Masks are supposed to save lives, but they obviously cannot save either individuals or society by destroying the very thing that makes us functional members of one body. This also emphasizes why we cannot escape the symbolic meaning of face coverings. As I've said repeatedly on True Magic, symbolism is not merely a linguistic or even cultural convention. Symbols are not metaphors. A metaphor, crudely put, is a figure of our speech, whereby one thing represents another. But a symbol, crudely put, is a figure of God's speech, whereby he spoke into being physical things to represent spiritual ones. Symbolism, in other words, is what the world is. It is built into the structure of creation, and thus into the nature of humanity. So certain patterns express certain spiritual realities, regardless of whether we are well attuned to them or not, and regardless of whether we like them or not. We don't make the symbolic rules. We don't choose the symbolic patterns. We can use those patterns, but we cannot change them. We continue to walk upright, for instance, with our heads on the tops of our bodies, despite our cultural hatred of headship and hierarchy. Up and down continue to hold their obvious significance, despite our empirical confusion about not finding heaven in space, nor hell within the earth. And in the same way, we continue to recognize people by their faces and voices, and these things continue to represent our identity, our meaning, our agency and power over our world, regardless of our best efforts to pretend otherwise. For instance, even as we try to suggest that masking up doesn't convey what both scripture and nature tell us it conveys, and while foolish brothers and quizzling pastors try to convince us that it now signals loving yourself and your neighbor rather than implicitly hating both, feminists continue to decry the niqab and the burqa as dehumanizing symbols of subjugation. Because being forced to cover your face is a dehumanizing symbol of subjugation. 
In case there was any doubt, consider this telling tweet from Jonathan Pajot. I quote, Mask mandate lifted in schools for my three kids after two years. Almost no one removed their masks. I asked if the kids are afraid of COVID. My children said no. Almost all of them have had it by now. They are just ashamed. End quote. Given what I have said here, this would have been easy to predict. You can't spend two years acting out a symbolic pattern of worthlessness and not expect it to wear deep into your soul. Masking ritually ingrains shame into you. It changes your identity. There's another critically important thread to draw into my case. Simply put, scripture links the face not just with our own identity, but with the image and glory of God himself. Thus, to cover the face is symbolically to make God's own image and glory of no account. The easiest way to see this is to remember the very strange thing that happened to Moses when he spent time with God on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, 29-35, we read this. It came to be when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone by reason of his speaking with him. And when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward all the sons of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he took the veil off, until he came out. And he came out and spoke unto the sons of Israel that which he was commanded. And the sons of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again, until he went in to speak with them. It's Exodus 34, 29-35. This is yet another thing in scripture that is discomforting and confusing to our empirical mindset, but perfectly comprehensible, even predictable, given a symbolic approach. For our purposes, two things are the most important to note. Firstly, Moses' face reflects God's glory physically, just as Jesus' face was as the sun shining in full strength in Revelation 1.16. Secondly, Moses conceals his glory with a veil due to the Israelites' fear. Paul takes up the theological significance of this in 2 Corinthians 3 as he speaks of the ministry of the new covenant, saying, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, and are not as Moses who put a veil upon his face, that the children of Israel should not look steadfastly on the end of that which was passing away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remaineth, it not being revealed to them that it is done away in Christ. But unto this day, whensoever Moses is read, a veil lieth upon their heart. But whensoever it shall turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Second Corinthians 3, 12-18 the depths of this are profound, but the shallows are easy to navigate. Firstly, the veil that Moses wore was, like all veils, an implicit judgment of worthiness. You might imagine that it was a judgment on the glory of God, but in fact, it was a judgment on the people who were afraid to see that glory. Paul tells us that their minds were hardened, and the veil was thus a symbol of their unworthiness to receive God's glory. 
The brightness of Moses' face was concealed from their physical eyes precisely because the glory of God was already concealed from their spiritual eyes. Paul is very clear. Their hearts were veiled and thus hardened against the gospel, that is, the message of who God is and what he has done. Secondly, when we receive the gospel, the veil is removed from our hearts, and therefore Paul emphasizes the unveiling of our faces. The face, as the visible representation of the heart, is where we see God's glory reflected. It is where we receive the glory of the Lord, and where we reflect it back as we are transformed into his image. Paul describes our faces as mirrors reflecting that glory back to each other. This is because the face reflects the heart, and the heart reflects the image of God. Thus, our faces reflect the image of God. The face is literally a symbol of God's image and glory. Hence, he says in another place, A man indeed ought not to have his head veiled, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. This is not some arcane item of theological trivia. It is foundational to human nature itself. When God made Adam, he made him in his own image and likeness. This image and likeness was first and foremost spiritual, for God is spirit. But because Adam is physical, his body is itself a visible representation of his invisible spirit. And it is in his face that this invisible image is brought to full manifestation. Both theologically and phenomenologically, the face is how we commune with other images of God and with God himself. Thus, to conceal the face is to conceal the image and glory of God. Now, because someone is going to ask, yes, this is attenuated in the case of women who are the glory of man. They image God indirectly. The symbolism of man and woman and glory and coverings would take us much further afield than I want to go in this episode. But suffice to note that while women are bade to cover their heads in worship, they are not bade to cover their faces. Now, are there times when it is right to conceal God's image, to cover the face? Of course. There are times when modesty or safety, real safety, demand that we temporarily cover and even protect God's image in our face. But to do so continually in a social setting, and especially in church of all places, and to do so at the command of a lying government that we know is in some sense demonically steered, is not just cowardly and foolish, but is actually idolatry. And to refuse to do so is not rebellion. Rebellion is a rejection of lawful authority. We are not rebelling. We are resisting unlawful authority. We are free men declining to build our own slave house. We are able to say with Isaiah, The Lord Yahweh will help me. Therefore have I not been confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. There's one last biblical principle we need to draw into this to fully understand the significance of masking. And this is where things get a bit weird. To see this, let me return to the point I made in the introductory episodes of this podcast. Man was made to worship, to serve God. And all of life is service of God. And so patterns of worship are built into creation. These patterns work out in every culture, regardless of their religion or lack thereof, including, obviously, in our own culture. And there is something quite strange that scripture says about these patterns of worship in Psalm 115. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them shall be like unto them. Yea, everyone that trusteth in them. 
What scripture teaches us here is simple, but strange to modern ears. We want to reinterpret this as some sort of figure of speech. But what it says straightforwardly is that you become what you worship. Romans 1 tells us that God gives people over to religious errors, which they then image through their physical bodies. What you revere is what you begin to resemble. We also see this clearly in 2 Corinthians 3, which I just read before. Christians too become what they worship, being transformed into the image of God as we behold that image with unveiled face. We know how this ends from 1 John 3 2. We know that if he shall be manifested, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. Everyone becomes what they worship, for good or evil. If the face is intimately connected with the image of God and with worship, then what do we become when we implicitly worship another god by engaging in the religious pattern, the quasi-right, of covering our faces? What will happen to us if we remove our faces, silence our voices, obliterate the image of God? And are our authorities intentionally trying to bring this about? Is mass masking actually meant to be a kind of magical ritual, in other words? To understand what I'm asking, it will help to quickly rehearse the rationale behind magic in the first place. Magic and idolatry are more or less the same thing. So if you find the idea of worshipping an idol baffling, and you simply cannot understand how anyone could imagine that a carving was a god, then you are missing a crucial magical understanding of the world that is instinctively obvious to a man who is not encumbered as you are by enlightenment thought patterns. The reason people make idols and do magic in non-enlightenment thinking is precisely because of the connection between symbol and reality. Throughout history and cultures, men have naturally intuited the power of symbolism to help them become what they worship. By symbolically representing the reality that they are interested in, they hope to enter into that reality, to participate in that reality, even to cause that reality to come about in some way. A classic example of this mindset is the idolater who symbolically represents fertility by having sex in the temple, so the gods in heaven will bring about fertility in the land. He is hosting the heavenly pattern in his body, in his actions, in his behavior. He is participating in it in order to bring it down to earth. Similarly, the witch doctor symbolically represents hurting someone by driving needles into his effigy, into a host of his identity, so that person will actually be hurt. Or the modern athlete symbolically represents his past win by wearing the same clothes that were closest to his body on that day, intuiting that he might represent that reality, that win, in the world. This is often called sympathetic magic. Certainly the thinking behind sympathetic magic is mistaken, but scripture is not actually clear in what way or by how much. From what we have seen of symbolism already, magical thinking is not nearly as mistaken as smug modern Christians would like to imagine. Those people who understand so little of the connection between physical and spiritual realities that they can't even fathom why anyone would create an idol to worship in the first place. We must acknowledge that the physical really does image the spiritual, and that there is some sense in which magic can therefore really produce these kinds of connections. The exact mechanism, the causality, and the reliability of magic is obscure, but the Witch of Endor really did descend into the underworld by going down into her necromancy pit, and she really did come back out again with the spirit of Samuel. By the same token, spiritual beings really do produce supernatural effects in the physical world. 
as the girl afflicted with the spirit of Python who could tell a future, or the magicians of Pharaoh who could turn staves into snakes. It was not because magic didn't work that Yahweh forbade it under pain of death, but because it did. We must take this with the utmost seriousness, because the sacraments themselves follow this pattern and logic. Liturgy is symbolic too. In baptism, we really do descend into death with Christ, and we really are raised up a new creation. That's what Colossians 2.12 says, and Romans 6.3-4, and 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is why 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism saves us. By the same token, in the Lord's Supper, we really do partake of the Lord's body and blood, which is why Paul can say that whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.27. In Christ, we really are seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.17-23, so that in worship we really do enter the heavenly court, as Hebrews 12.18 straightforwardly says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Which is why scripture makes so much of our not despising this extraordinary gift. Now, am I suggesting that the sacraments are magical? No, God forbid. Or, yes, the sacraments are true magic, Pagan magic is a distortion and perversion of this true magic, the symbolic mechanism that's built into creation and properly regulated by covenant. And this mechanism really does something. So here is my final question, a disconcerting thought I shall not attempt to answer, but leave for you to pursue in your own time. If mask mandates are motivated and directed by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as scripture tells us they must be, And if masking is symbolic and tacitly religious, and if symbolic actions really do something to the point that we can at least sometimes participate in the deeper reality that we are expressing, then is it possible that masking up is meant to be not just a way of effacing our identities, but also a way of performing a kind of mass spell in order to spiritually, magically, symbolically, facilitate the very subjugation that it represents. As I say, I shall not attempt to answer this question, but if you have enjoyed this episode, please consider joining us in our Signal discussion group to tell us your own thoughts and answers. Head over to truemagic.nz and follow your nose to sign up as a paid member. In the meantime, go forth and present your bodies a living sacrifice to God by not masking up for Satan. This has been True Magic.